History is about civilizations that have come and gone. It's about the development of humankind and history is about the human stories worth telling. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Actually, I'm not Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. I am Kathy Kayla. I'm actually just uh, facilitating, rather. But I would like to introduce to you, firstly say good morning. But uh, this is a new series that we are going to be doing here on High FM, History for the Curious, where we zoom in to very specific times in history and zoom out. There's, there really is very, very well-documented history when it comes to the Jewish people. I think possibly more so as a as a small community of the world, considering that we are 0.01% of the world's population, and yet we have this history that we have treasured and we have kept it, we have archived everything. But when you look at an archive, it's important to be able to deep dive and look into very specific times and the human stories around them. Who's go- The person who's going to really be the expert on this is Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. He is a lecturer at the Jewish Learning Institute in London. He has been for the last 25 years, and he has a particular interest in history. Good morning, Rabbi. How are you? Good morning. Yes, I'm actually speaking to you here from the JLE in London. So uh, we are live across two continents as we speak. Well, welcome. I'm looking very, very forward to co-hosting this with you. Rabbi Hirsch, you wanted to talk about the Cairo Geniza this this week, which I've been absolutely fascinated with. First, let's perhaps start with what a Geniza is. Many people don't know what a Geniza is. Right. So the truth of the matter is that uh, Jews tend to be obsessed with the written word, uh, not just the sort of the uh, biblical elements of it, uh, but anything that we write down and anything that is legible occupies some sort of hierarchy for, for Jews. And there is, from a Jewish legal perspective, a halachic perspective, uh, the idea that one should not just discard um, old texts, but they should be... Uh, placed with care um, either into a repository or, for instance, in the, te- in the case of a scroll, that it should be buried in a cemetery. So we accord it quite a degree of reverence. But really, that applies to religious texts. The thing is that uh, as soon as a Jew has scribbled anything in Hebrew on a piece of paper, Uh, they feel that they've sort of elevated it to being of religious significance and they're going to place it in a synagogue. Generally, most synagogues will have an area where they preserve uh, or they conserve these documents. And what that means is that on average, were you to open these boxes, uh, you'd find at least two-thirds of materials in there which have no place being in there at all. And normally that's a nuisance because normally you now have to get rid of them somehow and it's just taking up precious space. In the case of the Geniza that we will be discussing, the one that that was in Cairo, it was a treasure trove because generally um, historical documents tend to be about the big guys, 
So they are about the rulers or about the leaders or about uh, momentous events that have taken place. But you don't hear anything from the average school child or housewife or somebody who was almost anonymous in the background, and they don't make it into the history books. For the almost the first time ever, the Cairo Geniza changes all of that. Because people would throw into the wastebasket, so to speak, everything that had some Jewish connection to it, we have managed to discover thousands of documents, hundreds of thousands of documents, in effect, um, which shed light on social life, on economic life, and yes, obviously on religious life as well, of people living a thousand years ago. And what is fascinating is how in certain ways it's so similar to the lives that we are leading today. And in some ways, it is a, uh, a window onto a medieval world that we've never seen. So, for instance, you've got a letter written by a school teacher telling the parents, don't be hard on your child when he comes home with a broken slate, because that's what they would write on in, in, in class. Uh, don't be hard on him. Uh, he's being bullied by a couple of other kids in class. And it is just so 21st century, but it's a thousand years old. Um, as they say in French, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more we actually see they are the same. And the truth is, we shouldn't be that surprised because human beings have been the same all the way through the millennia. Circumstances may have changed. Uh, there might be more science and technology. But bottom line, we are the same. And therefore, what's fascinating to discover is these nuggets, these insights, these little bits of information that really make a personal touch to lives that were lived a thousand years ago. And that really is what's exciting about it. It's so interesting that you say that. I mean, it's, King Solomon also said there's nothing new under the sun. As different yep. as we think we are with our technologies, you know, if we look back into history, there were, there were civilizations that were far more technologically advanced than we are today. You know, moving things around with sound. And we, we tend to think that we are getting more clever and so we develop more technology. I think that we're de developing the technology because we need it, whereas <laughs> previous right. generations didn't. So let's get back to the Geniza. By the way, if you would like to ask Rabbi Hirsch, any questions about the Cairo Geniza, we can have the conversation. Join the conversation. 34519 is the text line. Those SMSs will charge, will cost you one rand fifty, or for free. You can send us a message on Telegram if you have the app, and that number is 061-895-1019. But you knew that anyway. You're also welcome to text. You can tweet at chaifm, C-H-A-I-F-M. Or you can email on air at chaifem.com. I'm Kathy Kayla, and this is History for the Curious. We'll be right back. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. And I'm Kathy Kayla, along with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, who is a senior lecturer at the Jewish Learning Institute in the UK. He has a particular interest in history, and we're talking today about the Cairo 
Geniza. If you missed the first part, let me just sum up very, very quickly. A Geniza is a repository of Jewish documents. Uh, as Jews with any Hebrew writing, well, especially if there is the name of God, we don't just discard that piece of paper. It either gets buried uh, in, a, in a grave like it would with a person. But in Cairo, there was this huge repository of 400,000 documents called the Cairo Geniza. You can go and Google it. Rabbi Hirsch, talking about you know what, what we do with documents where there's God's name or Hebrew writing is that we bury it. We bury it in the cemetery. Why wasn't this, these documents, why weren't these buried? So uh, it's not actually a universal application, meaning as follows. If it is a Torah scroll, then we are going to bury it in a cemetery, although it has to be placed in a container where it won't degrade um, as quickly. But where we are talking about any other types of writings, a let's say a volume of Talmud or a, a classic Jewish text, there, it, it can be placed in a uh, box or repository somewhere uh, where it is placed with care. Um, and that was the case in the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Cairo, um, which is in Fustat. Fustat initially um, was the capital of uh, the Egyptian Empire of the Caliphate. Um, and it was slightly distant from the main town of Cairo itself. Uh, subsequently, it has now become a suburb. Um, I visited there with my wife some uh, 30 years ago. And uh, bizarrely, if you now want to get into that synagogue, which still stands, it's over a thousand years old, you have to traipse through the um, Santa Barbara monastery complex in order to get there. That's just a, how one of these things has uh, worked out through the vagaries of history. But in that synagogue, uh, the wall past the women's section in the synagogue at the very front was really um, a hollow space in which for um, hundreds of years, for centuries, they were placing these texts and it, it would have been copied all over the Jewish world. It just happens to be that the climate conditions in Cairo meant that even if you opened it a thousand years later, much of it would be legible to some extent. Uh, whereas had it been in, you know, in Germany, in, in Ashkenazi Europe, as so to speak, it would not have been preserved for any length of time. So how and was it discovered? How was it discovered? So every synagogue, as I say, would have had some form of deposit. Uh, of deposit. And that means that people were aware that in all of these places, there would be these leftovers, these remains. Uh, you could have gone to Iraq, to the Crimea. You could have gone to anywhere where there was a uh, Jewish population who had lived there for a number of centuries, and you would have come across uh, the same phenomenon. And uh, therefore, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock. What was surprising was the content. 
people assume that, you know, what am I going to find in there? Maybe somebody's wedding invitation and, uh, you know, Chumash, uh, a Bible which has been worn out through use. It's not exactly going to make it back onto my shelf, uh, nor am I going to display it on my mantelpiece. It's of no particular value. And um, to the surprise of the people who started researching, um, there were things of enormous interest. Firstly, from a religious perspective, you had writings uh, which were unknown or which shed light, further light, on uh, books that were uh, already um, extant, and that therefore made a difference to a religious research. But equally, on a social level, on an economic level, um, there were a lot of preserved pieces, uh, ketubot, marriage um, documents, dating back um, eight, nine hundred years, with, um, maybe we'll get to this um, by the by, um, prenups. Um, women who said, you know, I'm only getting married under certain conditions. And in many ways, that turns on its head what we had assumed was the role of the woman in medieval society, in a Muslim world. Uh, you know, we would have thought they had very few rights and very little to say for themselves. This actually does us a, an, an enormous service by giving us an insight and giving us an understanding of their role and their rights. So, you know, just from that perspective alone, um, there are people who have written PhDs. Uh, Dr. Amir Ashur, who was the first person I ever met in the Geniza collection about 15 years ago, uh, wrote his PhD on prenuptial agreements um, in the Geniza collection. Absolutely so, fascinating. You know, it's absolutely fascinating the things that are so different. What are, what else do we know about the economics, about business at that time? Maybe before we even get there, can you set what was what was the landscape in old Cairo between the tenth and the thirteenth century? What was right. happening in the world then? Just to give us a okay. time frame. So the truth of the matter is that. Uh, I'm going to concentrate more on what was happen happening in the Middle East, uh, because that accounts for much of the correspondence and uh, most of the documents that we have in the uh, Cairo Geniza, unsurprisingly. And it, it went through various transformations, the, the, the power of the Egyptian caliphate. And at times... They were particularly powerful, particularly strong economically as well. And therefore, you have a trading network that spans Spain to India and even the Far East. And as a result, you have correspondents, Jewish correspondents, traders, Jewish traders um, who would undertake journeys to these places, initially just within the Mediterranean basin but then across the Indian Ocean as well. And one of the things it gave rise to was uh, a length of absence between a husband and a wife. If a husband were to go trading to India, it was likely uh, that he would not be back for 12 months. And what that created was a situation 
where a, a wife could be waiting on knowing the fate of her husband and it gave rise to a whole series of um, divorce documents which were conditional, altenai, as it's called in, in Hebrew Aramaic, which meant that the husband would write a document to his wife saying, if I am not back um, three years hence, this document becomes valid at that date. And that would ensure that the uh, woman would be free to remarry and would uh, regain uh, her own independence and control over her own life, uh, which was important in an age where communication was quite in its infancy. So the, the, you know, the, the social and economic world that uh, the Egyptian caliphate had connections to and at certain stages ruled was quite vast. Uh, but then because of um, the Crusades and because of various influences and wars that that waned and it, therefore it was, uh, you know, a, a moving target in many ways. And that is reflected in the type of documentation we find and in what is being described. Sometimes it's prosperity and sometimes it's far more economic hardship. Um, so once again, just like there are economic cycles nowadays, there's an upturn and a downturn. It was happening then, and it is being described in partnerships. We also find an enormous amount of correspondence and, and, and in fact, partnerships between Jews and Muslims. Uh, there was quite a degree of integration. And for many Jews, their first language was Arabic. It's what they wrote in. Uh, it's what they spoke. And indeed, and we'll, we have to come to the, the most famous individual uh, described and uh, discovered in the Geniza, uh, Maimonides, the Rambam, most of his writings were actually in Arabic, including his religious texts. Only one was written in Hebrew, and that is his magnum opus, um, his uh, halachic, his legal work, 14 volumes, uh, where because it is a legal work, the language needs to be more precise. So he wrote it in Hebrew. Uh, but in all other cases, he wrote in Arabic, although um, to be accurate, it is what's called Judeo-Arabic, meaning that he's using Hebrew letters to write Arabic. Both Hebrew and Arabic are written from right to left. So in that sense, it isn't sort of difficult on the eye. Uh, but um, he would write salam rather than shalom. Uh, but he would write it with the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so it doesn't take on the characteristic um, Arab writing that you would be used to. But if you don't speak and read Arabic, you're not going to make head or tail of many of these documents, including religious texts, including religious works. Rabbi Hirsch, when you look back at somebody like Maimonides, who was so comfortable going outside and working outside of the community, does it not make us feel today that our lives are so small? It's almost parochial in that we don't really do that. Oh, I don't know what's happened to Rabbi Hirsch. Well, it was, oh, you was there? By, by force. 
Oh, it was but, by force. Eh? I thought. I thought. Yeah, um, so wasn't wasn't he, he a doctor? Wasn't he a doctor to? Even even that yes. is part of a longer story. Yes. Uh, meaning as follows: He was born in Cordoba in Spain. Yes. He was born there, uh, according to most historians, in 1135, and he eventually passes away in 1204 in Egypt in in Fustat. But in the interim, he will have spent years in Morocco, um, a short stint in the land of Israel and 39 years, as it turns out, in Egypt. All of his moves were brought about uh, by um, geopolitical forces. So when he is 13 years old, a more fanatic group of Muslims will invade uh, southern and central Spain and will give Jews a threefold choice of um, conversion, exile, or death. And his father at the time takes the whole family um, and they wander through the Sierra Nevada mountains of Spain for a number of years. So they are refugees at a time where you don't have the ability to, you know, find and settle down easily in a new place because you don't know what's going to be coming your way. And he is subject to uh, the vagaries of uh, the weather, of highwaymen, of various other things. So he's on the move. Uh, despite all of this, by the way, he creates his first um, safe his first book is written while on the move without any books to consult from. It gives you an, an insight into, into how great he was. He then goes down to Morocco. In Morocco, he's there for a number of years, settled, and then the same uh, phenomenon happens. He then has to go to the land of Israel and ends up in, in Egypt. So that's, as far as his uh, travel is concerned, it's imposed upon him. And even becoming a doctor, there is an absolutely fascinating document in the Geniza collection. Um, it is one that uh, if any of our listeners are ever in Cambridge and um, they uh, make an appointment in advance, uh, they can ask to see and literally handle this particular document. It is a letter from the brother of Maimonides, David, who was six years younger than him. And he was a trader in precious gems, in diamonds, etc. And he would travel, as we mentioned, traders would do to the Far East. In fact, we've even got correspondence from Indonesia, Jewish correspondence in, in the Geniza collection. Um, and this is how he would support Maimonides. So Maimonides and his brother are both married. They're both living in Egypt. They both have families. And his younger brother is supporting his ability to study, to teach, and uh, crucially, to write. And his brother writes him a letter from this Sudan. He has traveled south uh, with a whole caravan, got separated from them, somehow made his way through the desert on his own, and ends up in a port town where he has booked passage on a ship. And he writes in this letter, and it's interesting, the handwriting is similar to Maimonides' own handwriting. 
you can actually see the familial imprint of these two brothers. Um, and he writes, you know, I know that you, Moshe, as in the Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe, Ben Maimon, Maimonides, I know you've told me not, necess- not to embark on this journey, but I feel I should nonetheless. And I am now going to be traveling. This, tragically, was the last letter and the last uh, uh, piece of information and news that Maimonides ever heard from his brother, who is presumed to have drowned at sea. And Maimonides was absolutely bereft. We have a letter that he wrote to Provence in the south of France saying that um, he was bedridden as a result of this tragedy. That's how powerfully it affected him. And he shed many tears over the letter. So we've actually got a physical piece of paper that Maimonides would have handled often as the last... uh, the, the, the last piece, the last link that he had to his brother. But it, from it a is cra- so touching. That is so touching to see the humanness of absolutely. our sages. It's absolutely incredible. Sorry, I interrupted and, you. And that's what the Geniza brings out in certain ways as well. The human dimension. It's not just his religious writings. It's him as a human being, him as a uh, brother him as a member of a family. And as a result of this sudden loss, Maimonides now has to provide not only for his own family, but for his brother's family. The the responsibility is now his to do that which his brother had been doing until now. And therefore, he practices medicine. He was um, a doctor in the sense that he was able to practice, uh, should he have wanted to beforehand. He had the knowledge of it. He'd written on it. In fact, to this day, uh, there are writings of Maimonides on poisons and various things uh, that uh, are available and still you know, usable. But the economic necessity meant that he now becomes a, a doctor which takes up almost all of his day. In a, in a different letter, this is not in the Geniza, but this is found elsewhere, he is writing, he's already in his 60s, and he talks of the fact, uh, he, he describes his time, his day, daily uh, routine, his daily timetable, and he writes of the fact that he has no time to study, but very, very late at night and on the Saturday, on the Shabbat, on, on, on uh, uh, the day of rest, because at all other times, his medical uh, requirements just eat up all of his day. So it actually, in a way, came by force. Yes, he did have correspondence with um, Muslim scientists, so to speak, and and people of knowledge long before this event. Uh, But there's certain elements of his life that came about, that transpired through circumstance. I'm Kathy Kaler, and... Well, actually, I'm just facilitating Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. If you've just joined us, this is History for the Curious. Rabbi Hirsch is a senior lecturer at the Jewish Learning Institute in London. He has a particular interest in history. And if you want to know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Cairo Geniza. It was discovered for the first time as early as the 1700s and then 
you know, scientists throughout history have kind of dipped in, dipped out. But really, more and more information since the 1800s is coming to the fore as to why it is of so such significance. If you missed the story, what Rabbi Hirsch was saying earlier. So firstly, a Geniza is a repository of Jewish documents. The one in Cairo, Cairo was these documents were basically discarded or left in the walls of the synagogue in old Cairo. And they weren't just... You know, they were regular documents as well as holy documents. So what Rabbi Hirsch was saying earlier is saying, you know, one of the letters that are there is a, a letter from a teacher to parents of this child saying, please don't be angry with your son. His tablet was broken because he's being bullied by two other kids. Now, what that does is it connects us. It connects us through thousands of years we're talking about a thousand years ago and we tend to think that our ancestors and life before us was so very very different if you've got any questions for rabbi hirsch send them through go on i know you've got those burning questions three four five one nine is the text line those sms's are charged at one rand fifty you can also send a telegram message from anywhere in the world and the number is plus two seven uh, 618951019. I just needed to put the South African codes into my brain. Uh, you can also tweet at ChaiFM, C H A I F M, or you can email on air at ChaiFM.com. Send through your questions. We're going to continue talking about the Cairo Geniza. What what documents are there that will paint a picture for us of what was happening for Jews in terms of anti-Semitism? What was happening with, for, the, for them socially? What was happening to that community economically? What was happening generally politically? Let's hear all of it. I love the fact that it challenges the roles of women, that a woman can uh, decide with a prenup, you know, really she had the power so it paints our picture of this woman being these little subservient women. Forget it. And I'm glad about that. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. And I'm Kathy Kaler facilitating Rabbi Hirsch. who's actually sitting in London at the Jewish Learning Institute where he's a senior lecturer and has been for the past 25 years. And uh, we've been talking about the Cairo Geniza, which is, you can, you can Google it, and you, there's so much more. We're definitely not going to be able to finish this all in an hour. But uh, it's absolutely fascinating to see how we are not that different from our ancestors, from our sages, from times and years and millennia gone by. It's nothing new under the sun. Rabbi Hirsch, a message has come through unsigned that says, a great interview, Kathy, really enjoying the rabbi and loving his eloquence. Well, there we go. I have to second that. I, I find you absolutely fascinating. I feel that we could talk about history for the rest of the day, but we're not going to. We have to save some stuff for next week. So, Rabbi, let's talk back. I'm, to not, I'm not sure more so sure it is the eloquence. It might just be the British accent. <laughs> you know, what, you, you can't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the Geniza and these documents in this repository teach us about life for the Jewish community of Egypt a thousand years ago? 
Uh, uh, that's oh, it's such a broad question. Um, it, well, we, we can break it talk- down. We can break it down right. socially. Yes. Kashrut. Talking about did they have uh, cashrut issues? Were they, did, did they complain about the price of meat, kosher meat? <laughs> so you have, for instance, letters being written um, to raise funds for certain communities. Um, you at times. Um, interestingly, even though the Cairo Geniza was obviously uh, created in a Muslim world and there are documents written in Aramaic, in Arabic, in Hebrew, you surprisingly have about a half a dozen documents, probably no more, written in Yiddish. Uh, which was language spoken by Jews living in northern Europe. So they would have been living in um, the north of France or in Germany or perhaps in um, what is nowadays the Czech Republic and what was Bohemia back then. So why and how are there Yiddish documents in Cairo? You know, who speaks the language? Never mind who writes it. And uh, the answer lies in the fact that there was a a woman called Rachel, this is in the 1560s, who has moved to Jerusalem, where there was a small Ashkenazi community. And her son has gone to seek his fortune and ends up in Cairo. He marries a local girl who, interestingly enough, his mother approves of. Oh, so, uh, were they really Jewish? A, Are you sure? It, right, yes, not a total <laughs> Jewish mother-in-law. Uh, but nevertheless, she writes in this letter, uh, you never write, you never call. You know, that part <laughs> is definitely uh, the, the classic element. And so therefore, you see within her letter, between the lines, what life is like economically in Jerusalem in the 1500s, and it was pretty tough. Um, It was just about getting um, started again uh, post the period of the the, the various crusades. And you have an individual appeal to her own child for some economic sustenance, which uh, he responds to. And therefore, You know, at times, people did definitely describe their own personal circumstances. Um, And similarly, you have from far more internationally famous individuals, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, who was possibly the greatest uh, Jewish poet in the last, uh, possibly ever, but definitely in the last thousand years, who famously talks about Uh, My heart is in the east, although I am in the west. And he then makes a voyage to end up in the land of Israel. Um, And he describes all the distractions that come his way, all of those things that prevent him from writing and uh, from concentrating as he would have wished. Once again, a, a, a human dimension. And he talks about how economically at times um, he was subject to uh, the the uh, Arab world imposed upon anyone who was non-Arab. It wasn't specifically aimed at the 
Jews, uh, Christians would likewise uh, have to uh, undergo the same uh, rules and regulations, and they were subject to what might be called the poll tax that the individual had to pay uh, arriving into town, and at one stage he had to be bailed out because he arrives in a new town, he does not have any money, he doesn't have the ability to enter into the city, uh, but he had uh, told them in advance that he's coming, so they bail him out. Um, and therefore, the, you know, it, it is a, uh, a picture that takes you in so many different directions. That, that's, the, that's the beauty of it. And uh, in terms of business correspondence, shipments coming late, um, and uh, complaints about the quality of the produce that they've been sent. All of these things, it's, it, it just is current affairs asserting itself into a world of a thousand years ago in the Middle East. Absolutely fascinating. What have you personally, obviously you've learned a lot, but what are the things that have really stood out for you, Rabbi, from what you've learned from the Cairo Geniza? So I'm not sure that it's so much what I have learned, although there's been a lot of that, but it is the connection that I have made to particular documents that have just been absolutely fascinating for me. Um, and whenever I take groups to uh, to Cambridge, to the, the Geniza collection in the, in the university library there, uh, I always ask for them to be put on display because I just find them to be so fascinating and so meaningful in many ways. Um, just to be clear, you're talking about Cambridge, yep. Oxford. You're not talking about Cambridge, Massachusetts. That is correct. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Two I, very um, famous Cambridge universities exist. Right. Different continents, right. yes. Although the, 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 the English one did precede the okay. um, North American one. Yes, you were first. <laughs> right. In fact, as a, uh, a, a factoid that I came across the other day, the, uh, the press, the, the um, printing press, with the longest lifespan to date is the Cambridge University Press, which has been in continuous operation since 1583. Wow. So, uh, yes, it's been going for a while. So, yes, I do mean Cambridge, England. And one of those documents is a piece from the Haggadah that we read on Pesach, on Passover. And there are a number of different um, extracts, a number of fragments, uh, but this particular one is noteworthy for a number of reasons. It is the most famous piece of the Haggadah. It is the four questions, the Manishtana, and it's across a, a double page. The first thing that's interesting about it is there aren't four questions. There are five. No. Yes. No. And <laughs> World but shattered. No, 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 no. There's a very good reason as to why there could be five without in any way detracting from the four that we are aware of. And that is because if you go back uh, a couple of thousand years to the Mishnah, which is the oral law, the Jewish oral law, uh, the chapter headings thereof, 
it describes the fourth question, this in, in the tractate Psachim, uh, which deals with Pesach, deals with Passover. In the final chapter, in the 10th chapter, it talks about the Seder. It talks about the evening of the first night and in outside of Israel, the first two nights of Passover or Pesach, where we will uh, perform certain activities, read certain texts, amongst which uh, are included the four questions. However, in temple times, when there was a temple in Jerusalem, one of those four questions was about the fact that we only had roasted meat on the night of Passover. And therefore, you know, why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we would have cooked or roasted or whatever. And on this night, it's only roasted. In this extract in the Cairo Geniza of the Haggadah, it has that as the fifth question in the past tense. Shahayinu, we used to in temple times, have wow. this as a question. So it's a sort of a, a historical add-on. It's been dropped over the ages simply because it's not something that a child could reasonably be expected to know about and therefore ask about on the night of Pesach um, because they wouldn't have exposure to what had taken place a thousand years prior or two thousand years prior. But in the Cairo Geniza, it is there as one of the what becomes five questions. What's also interesting is that this double page is written in three languages. Um, the instructions are in Arabic, Judeo-Arabic, as we mentioned, so Arabic written in Hebrew letters, but it will tell you, you know, now you break the matzah in two. And uh, now the child asks the, the questions. Hmm. So instructions are in Arabic. Texts are in Hebrew, as we have them today. And there is a translation into Aramaic. Because Aramaic was still very much a language spoken by Jews, even though the Talmud 500, 600 years earlier had been written in Aramaic because the Jews had been living in uh, what is today Iraq, Iran, in Babylonia, as it was at the time, and it was a lingua franca, it was the main language, um, but that persisted. That had not uh, altogether disappeared, and therefore you have on this double page three different languages side by side, Aramaic, Arabic, and Hebrew. So that's another element. Where is the Cairo Geniza today? So... The main elements of it, the main repository, is in Cambridge, in the University Library. That is probably... All 400,000 documents. Probably 190,000, and swelled by others, it's uh, probably um, a little bit south of a quarter of a million documents mm. in Cambridge. Um, there are probably 10,000 in Oxford, 10,000 in the JTS and Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. There are some in St. Petersburg. There are some in, uh, in a university in Manchester. Uh, there's another 10,000 there. Um, obviously, in Israel, uh, there are documents. So they are all over the place. However, a, a Jew living in Toronto a uh, number of years ago financed the digitization 
of the entire collection, which means that people can access all of it, even if they are living in countries far from the UK, and they can actually now sometimes marry up, uh, you know, two parts of a document together simply by the fact that they can have it on the screen in front of them and figure out that uh, it's uh, it's contiguous, that, it, you know, the one connects to the other. And um, even though it is scattered all over the world, in many ways, it can now be studied as one whole collection. Absolutely incredible. This has been the most fascinating Fascinating trip down memory lane with you. <laughs> if we can <laughs> Mem- memories. <laughs> memories lane. <laughs> I'm Kathy Kayla. My guest is Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, who's a senior lecturer at the Jewish Learning Institute in London. We've been talking about the Cairo Geniza which is a repository of 400,000 documents. It was first discovered in uh, the mid-1500s. And really, it, this repository are documents that date back a 1,000 years. And what is so interesting is that the issues that you know our ancestors a 1,000 years were facing are the same issues that we have today. Apparently, they, they still had issues with bullying in schools. So it's not such a new problem. Maybe it's time we got on, got on and dealt with it, you know, and <laughs> just moved on. <laughs> Rabbi Hirsch, it has been so enjoyable speaking to you. Uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with Rabbi Hirsch, his email is history at highfm.com. So uh, anybody, you, you ha- you're happy to take fan mail, Rabbi? Uh, I'm happy to take uh, all mail. All feedback is uh, gratefully received. Yes, so it's history at highfm.com, and um, I will endeavour to get back to um, any correspondents um, who wants to find out more or pass comments. Thank uh, you very much. Part of the... uh, um, I would say that um, further information on some of the Geniza will be found on uh, my podcasts, which themselves are also called History for the Curious um, and are available on all the uh, streaming platforms, Google, Spotify, Amazon, uh, wherever, or on the JLE's um, website itself, uh, jle.org.uk. But uh, the um, these podcasts, uh, there's a series of four on the um, Geniza, uh, which will shed more light, but uh, hopefully we will come back to it because there's a lot more to talk about, um, which I have not included on the podcasts and uh, which is definitely worth uh, knowing about. We need to expand on Maimonides, his uh, impact on the Geniza, uh, both socially and religiously, uh, was very far reaching. So you know, all in all, um, there is much uh, to talk about, much to discuss, and much to hear. Rabbi Hirsch, thank you so much. And uh, you can actually join us next week when we will continue to talk about the Geniza. And let's talk about Maimonides and his impact on the Geniza. Absolutely. Thank yes. you so yes. much. Yes. Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch from the Jewish Learning Institute in London. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your knowledge, your expertise, and taking us back and connecting the generations. From myself, Kathy Kayla, have a wonderful, wonderful week, and know that your day today could be making history in the best possible way for 
generations and uh, for generations to come, I guess. I will be back next week, 11 a.m., and have a wonderful, wonderful week. This will also be podcast on High FM and also on Spotify. Have a, go- have a blessed week. God bless. Bye-bye.